Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Father, we are in awe of your power and your calling you've placed on our lives. Lord, you call us out to be holy, to be set apart, to be different, to stand out in the world. And Father, the way that we understand how to be holy is by studying your word, by understanding your truth. And so I pray this morning as we open the truth of your word that we first of all understand it's infallible, Father. It's, it's without error. It's absolutely true. And it speaks directly into our lives. So I pray that we would take what we've learned today, Father, and apply it to our lives through the power of the Spirit, Lord. I pray that you would transform us on a regular basis into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to look more and more like Christ every moment of every day. We do all these things to honor you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and open to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35, we are continuing our study through the book of Genesis, and I just want to remind us of where we've been, and then we're going to kind of take a a, a big picture approach this morning with what's going on in the scripture. Last week, we studied again the life of Jacob. We've been studying him for the last many weeks, and last week, we kind of used a a visual aid that helped me, and I hope it helped you, but God basically called Jacob to spiritual renewal. And so we thought and talked last week about what spiritual renewal looks like in Jacob's life, what spiritual renewal could look like in our lives. And we said it kind of looks like this. God called Jacob here to do something, to go home basically, and he wanted him to go here. The problem was Jacob had all this stuff in the middle. And as we studied last week and worked our way through the text, we began to understand that the kind of the stuff in the middle were the false idols, the false gods. And we kind of made the connection in our lives that we, although we don't have little fake idols in our houses and little idol boxes, we have things that are false gods to us. And we talked through that. And we said, if we're going to go to a place of spiritual renewal... If we're going to go to where God has called us to go, we've got to deal with that sin. We've got to deal with those idols. We've got to deal with those things in our lives. And we said the way that we do that, first of all, is to recognize them. Just be clear. These are idols in my life. These are false gods. These are things that I place ahead of my faith. These are things that I place ahead of Christ in my life. And then once we recognize them, we've got to basically repent. Lord, forgive me. I've placed this, and you can fill in the blank, ahead of you. I've placed this in my life above my walk. I'm more concerned with this than I am with you. And so we kind of just work through that process of Jacob. We work through that process of renewal. And we just kind of understood through Scripture how we've got to draw ourselves near to the Lord and trust Him in all things. And that was kind of the first half of chapter 35. And now I want to do something this morning that's, that's very interesting to me. I, I'll be honest with you. I started reading this week the end of 35 and I looked on into 36. And as you begin to kind of study the second part, really the latter part of Genesis 35, in all 36, it's basically genealogies. 
Now, genealogies are difficult to preach because they're literally just lists. Now, they're important, but they're just lists of people. Here's the wife and the son and then his son and his grandson. And it just kind of works down this list. But I want to do something different this morning. I want to take kind of a big picture approach to the end of 35 and all of 36. Because when you do that, I think something's going to come into focus for you. It it did for me. And so let me just kind of summarize a couple things and kind of talk about where we're going to be going. Notice with me, if you would, Genesis chapter 35, beginning in, in verse 23. What we're going to see from 23 to 26 are the sons of Jacob, right? Now, these are the 12 tribes. Now, I'm not going to read them all because we've already spent some time in the past weeks thinking about the 12 tribes of Israel. But this is where we're going with Jacob. These are his sons. His sons will become the 12 tribes. And this will become even clearer to us as we kind of walk through the last few chapters of the book of Genesis. So basically, you've got at the kind of the end of chapter 35, the life of Jacob... Now, at the very end of 35, we've got these on the screens, verses 27, 28, and 29. Look with me if you would. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Remember, he's he's on a journey now. He's completed the journey. He's gone all the way home where Abraham and Isaac had stayed, right? So kind of the cycle is complete. He left, gone for 35 or 40 years. Now he's back, verse 28. Now we're going to think again about Isaac. Now this is Jacob's father. Remember, we got Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob. Verse 28, Isaac lived 180 years. Then he breathed his last and he died, was gathered to his people, old and full of years, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him now if you were to continue to read chapter 36 all of chapter 36 is about Esau you're saying great I don't where are we going with just think through with me just for a second okay let's take big picture end of 35 is Jacob in the 12 tribes one of the sons of Isaac the very end of 35 is the death of Isaac and then 36 is all of Esau Now, Isaac did a lot of incredible things. In fact, if you were to go back through his life, and we studied all this in Genesis, you would see he accomplished some pretty incredible things, and the Lord did some pretty incredible things through. Remember, he was the the promised son born to Sarah and Abraham. Remember, they waited so long, she was bare, and they couldn't have a son. God continued to promise. Ishmael was born, right? Not with Sarah, though, and God said he's not the one. About 12 years later, Isaac was born, the promised son. And and probably what we remember the best is from Genesis 22, when God told Abraham to take Isaac, go up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice. Remember the story? He takes the wood, he builds the altar. He ties up his son. The Bible said he's, he's literally about to draw back the knife and sacrifice his son. And God stops him, wait, wait, wait. And the Bible said he looks and he, he sees a ram caught in the thicket or he's kind of caught in the bush. And God says, you, you kill the ram in place of your son. It's, it's a beautiful picture in Genesis 22 of Messiah. Messiah will one day take our place as the sacrificial lamb. So, so Isaac, the point is Isaac has done some pretty incredible things. God has done some amazing things through him. But think about this now. At the end of his life, the end has come for him. Of all that he's done and all that he's been through and all that he's accomplished, none of those things are mentioned upon his death. You understand that? Now just track with me for a second here, okay? None of his accomplishments are mentioned. There's no mention of his wealth. There's no mention of his good deeds. 
Instead, all you have is right before his death, mention of one son, his death, right after his death, mention of the other son. In other words, the account of his death is not focused on the things that he did in his life. Instead, it's focused on the lives of his sons. Now, in other words, we view his legacy through the lens of his family. You following along with me there? Let me say that again. We view his legacy through the lens of his family. Is it possible, I wrote this in my notes as I'm considering this this week. Is it possible that our legacy will be directly tied to our family? Is that possible? I think more than possible, it's probably very likely. Now track with me for a second. I, I, I want to ask a question. I've asked this, I asked this question a few years ago and it really stuck with me. I think it was an interesting question to ask. How many of you can name with absolute certainty your great-great-grandfather? Just raise your hand. One, two, three, four. I mean, I can count maybe, on, maybe 10 people. So way less than 10% of the people. So let's say 95% of the people... And if I went one more great, you probably couldn't remember. 95% of the people can't remember their great, they don't know their great-great-grandfather's name. I don't know, I could guess. I mean, I know the last names and I could maybe wager a guess based on some family names. But I don't know with certainty. So here's what that means, right? A hundred years from now, the stark reality is there's probably nobody on this planet that will even remember your name. Nobody, nobody's gonna know your name. Much less what you did. Much less the kind of car you drove, much less the job you had or the neighborhood you lived in, or you kind of fill in the blank. But what they will know are your descendants. You understand that? The legacy that you're going to leave and the legacy that Isaac left and the legacy that Jacob and Esau left wasn't really about what they did. It was more about who they were in the eyes of the Lord and how the Lord used them and their families. So they're two kind of contrasting ideas, right? So again, we're going to bookmark, we're going to bookend the death of Isaac with the son Jacob and the son Esau. Those are vastly different paths. So if we want to kind of summarize, big picture, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, that's the godly path, godly success. Although Jacob didn't always seek the Lord, although he made mistakes, we, we've studied that over the last many weeks. He still trusted the Lord. That's godly success. And the Lord used him and especially used his family because of his faithfulness. Esau, in chapter 36, is a contrast with that. Because Esau is much more interested in earthly success. You follow me? So we've got the path of the Lord and godly success. And the path of the world and earthly success. One scholar said it like this. So the chapter in its context, this is chapter 36, portrays two roads set out before us all. The road to earthly success, fame and power, which can bring quick, visible results, and the road to obedience to the will of God, which is much slower and less visible in terms of the payoff. The worldly road focuses on the things which are seen, which from God's perspective are destined to perish. 
God's road focuses on the things which are not seen, but which are eternal and cannot be taken from us. So we can kind of summarize, summarize it like this. If we succeed by worldly standards, but fail with God, we lose. And I, I fear that far too many people, both outside and inside the church, build their legacy based on what the world thinks is important. And if we were honest with each other, and I'll be very honest with you right now, it's hard not to think that way, isn't it? It's hard sometimes not to be kind of consumed by that kind of stuff. What does the world think about the job that I have? Or what does the world think about the possessions? Or what does the world think about my power or my position or whatever that might look like for you, my social status? What does the world think about that? And if we're not careful, we kind of get sucked into this trap of pleasing the world and giving God whatever's left over. And it's just fascinating to me that when we study the life of Isaac, one of the, the, the fathers of the Jewish people, the patriarchs, Nothing about what he accomplished or his possessions are listed. It's really all about his family. And so I want to think for a few minutes this morning about Esau. We've spent a lot of time on Jacob. Jacob will come up again with the tribes of Israel. And so we kind of understand that, that godly path. And again, let's just be clear. It's not a path covered in roses for Jacob by any means. It's a path of failures, it's a path of mistakes, it's a path of spiritual highs and spiritual lows, of sin and repentance, of being far from the Lord and being near to the Lord. But in my mind, it's a real picture of what the Christian walk is like, isn't it? There are good times and there are bad times. There are moments when we're seeking the Lord and there are moments when we're running from the Lord. So we've seen this kind of path of godliness as difficult as it may be for Jacob. And so this morning I want to think for a little while about the path of Esau and about his legacy and how he was viewed. So take a look with me at chapter 36. Again, it's basically genealogy, so we're not going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to read just some portions and draw some truth from these portions of Scripture. Genesis chapter 36, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read this first verse, and we're going to stop for a minute because this is important for us to understand. Genesis 36, 1. This, now speaking of the next section, is the account of the family line of Esau. That is Edom. Now, stop there because that's very important. You say, why is it important? It's important because Esau means Edom. Okay, the scriptures just told us that. And all through the Old Testament, we can read about the Edomites. See, E-D-O-M is Esau, E-D-O-M-I-T-E-S, the Edomites. So the Edomites are the people that have come from Esau. Now, when we begin to understand that the Edomites are from Esau, from his family, it opens up a world for us to understand because there are all sorts of scripture in the Old Testament that speak of the Edomites. In fact, if you were to research the Edomites, you'd find a lot of interesting things about them. But one verse kind of summarizes it for us. I don't want you to turn there, but I want you to listen. Malachi chapter 1 verse 4. Edom, there's the word right there. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, right? These are the people, the, the Edomites. Though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins, 
But this is what the Lord Almighty says. There's the contrast, right? You say this, but here's what the Lord says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. So we could summarize it by saying the Edomites were a wicked group of people always interested in what they wanted to do far from the Lord. Now let's test your history just for a second, what you can remember about our study. Jacob and Esau are twins, remember that story. You remember many chapters ago, when they were still inside their mother's womb, before they were born, how did they respond to each other, you remember? They wrestle, they fall, they were angry. And so she prayed to the Lord and the Lord said, look, these are two brothers, but they're more than just brothers. They actually represent nations of people. Now we, we're, we're kind of putting these together now, right? So Jacob is going to become Israel. This is the nation the Lord is speaking of. Esau, the Edomites. And God said from the beginning, they're going to war with each other, not only as brothers, which we saw, they fought they were constantly against one another as individuals, but also as nations. So as we study and understand who the Edomites were, we understand scripturally through Genesis and other parts of the New Testament that the Israelites and the Edomites were constantly opposed to one another. And so you get prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Obadiah condemning the Edomites for being proud, for not relying on God, for not trusting the Lord. Over and over again, we see the Edomites were wicked. But here's the the interesting truth, and you need to understand this. We're going to see this in just a second in the text. The Edomites were wicked and opposed to the Lord and evil, and yet... From the outside looking in, everything looked great. So there's this idea here in Scripture that although they looked good and were successful by the world's standards, at the core they were wicked and opposed to the things of the Lord. You say, how do you know things look good from the outside? Well, let's look at the genealogy for a few minutes. Genesis chapter 36 verse 2. Now, I'm going to tell you just kind of this is the funny part about Scripture study, especially the Old Testament. All these names lived thousands of years ago. And so we can't go and ask somebody, how do you pronounce these names? And so if we were really honest with each other, we have no idea how to really pronounce them. So your guess is as good as mine. If I pronounce one a way you think it should be pronounced a different way, you're welcome to raise your hand and come up here and read the passage of Scripture for me. In fact, I'd be happy for you to do that. We're going to read through these names, and I want you to understand something before we get there. Back then, names were important, okay? I'll explain what I mean in just a second. So verse 2 of 36, right? So Esau is Edom. This is his family line. Verse 2, Esau took wives from the women of Canaan. Now, just pause there for a second. I'm not going to get into a lot of detail, but you may remember that his parents said to him, his brother, don't take a wife from Canaan. You remember that? Go home and find a wife. So automatically, right off the bat, we see that he's in opposition to what he was asked to do. That's, that's another story. This we took wives from the women of Canaan. Adah, daughter of Elon the Hittite. And Aholibama, that's an interesting name. Daughter of Adah, the granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite. 
Also, Bazemath, daughter of Ishmael, and sister of Nebaioth. Adah bore Eliphaz and to Esau. Bazemath bore Rubel. And Aholibama bore Jeash, Jalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in Canaan. Now, here's truth number two, and we're going to contrast the second truth with the first. The first truth was that Esau and the Edomites were wicked, and we can make that claim based on overwhelming scriptural evidence that they were in opposition to the will of God. We see that all through the Old Testament. That's the first truth. Contrasted to that, based on the genealogy in 36, is truth number two. Esau's legacy was earthly success. Okay? So he's wicked according to scripture, he's wicked according to the way he lived, he's wicked according to how he treated the Israelites, yet his legacy that we're going to read here is earthly success. Now there's some interesting things about the names of his wives. Again, for us, names are not a big deal. In fact, if I were to ask you right now, what does your name mean, most people wouldn't know. Maybe you've done the research, most people haven't. And even if you knew what your name meant, it wouldn't be that big of a deal to you. It'd be something to be interesting. Maybe you've got a little plaque on your wall that says it, but it's not really dictate the way you live your life. But in Old Testament times, names were very important. And people were given names based on who they were, who their families were, oftentimes the things that were important to them. And so as we read the names of his wives, scholars make a big deal about this. If you go read commentaries, and the guys that understand the original Hebrew and what that means, they make a big deal about this because the names of his wives have very specific meanings. For example, Bazemath means the perfumed one, right? She smelled good. That was important to her and to her family. Adah means ornament or the adorned one. Aholi Bama means tall and stately. You say, what, what's the big deal here? The big deal is that these names focus on outward appearance, outward beauty, sensuality. That was important. So you begin to look at this man Esau and you begin to realize he marries these women who were interested in outward things. Now there's nothing wrong with wanting to look pretty. There's nothing wrong with wanting to smell good. Those things are not necessarily bad, but we're building a case here, right? This is just one example. It's one example that Esau was concerned about worldly things. Okay, and here's what we begin to understand, if you want to kind of think through this with me as we think about his legacy. The legacy of a beautiful family does not bring God's blessings. God doesn't bless you because you look good. The way you look physically is is, is not really important to the Lord. Now, he doesn't want us to look run down. He wants us to take care of ourselves, but whether you're pretty or not, or the clothing you wear, or the color of your shirt, or how your hair looks, those things are not important to the Lord. He's not looking on the outside, he's looking at the heart. So just because something looks good from the outside doesn't mean it's where it needs to be on the inside. So let's continue, verse 6. So Esau took his wives and sons and daughters all the members of his household as well as his livestock and all the other animals and all the goods he had acquired in Canaan, he moved to a land some distance from his brother Jacob. Their possessions were too great for them to remain together. The land where they were staying could not support them both because of their livestock. You may remember when when Jacob is going to meet Esau. You remember the story? He sends out his ambassadors and they come back and they say, hey, listen, we found your brother. 
Esau is coming to meet you and he's bringing what? You remember? 400 men with him. Now you don't gain an army of 400 men without having an awful lot of possessions and an awful lot of power. And so what we begin to understand is when we we read these passages of Scripture and we tie that into what we already know about Esau, Esau had great wealth and great power. So we see a man who was interested in, in, in beautiful things. His family apparently was beautiful to look at. This is a man who had great wealth, but another truth, the legacy of many possessions does not bring God's blessing. Just because you've got a lot of stuff doesn't mean the Lord's going to necessarily bless you. Again, we're, we're building a case here for Esau's heart. It looks good from the outside. The world would look and think he's successful. He's got a beautiful family. He's got a lot of stuff. He's got a lot of possessions. And it continues. If you were to read verses 8 through 14, you would see more about his family and his sons. And then in verse 15, it, it changes course just a little bit here. Look at verse 15. These were the chiefs among Esau's descendants. If you were to go a little bit farther than that, you would see the kings that come from the people of Esau. So not only does he have a beautiful family, not only does he have great possessions and wealth, but he's got powerful rulers within his family. Chiefs and princes and kings all come from his family. But again, just to be clear, the legacy of powerful rulers does not bring God's blessings. So just to kind of back up for a second and understand what we're saying here. Esau looked good on the outside. The family looked good. The possessions were nice. He all, had all the stuff that people wanted. He had powerful rulers within his family. He had a lot of clout socially. This was a guy that by the world's standards was extremely successful. We need to understand that. But you contrast that with what we read about his family over and over in Scripture. They were wicked people. One scholar summarized it like this. Esau, the man whose generations are listed here, was a most successful man by worldly standards. He was the founder of a dynasty and a nation, a father of rulers and kings. He enjoyed financial prosperity. He had good-looking women in his harem. He had political power. He was a famous man in his time and for hundreds of years after. And he was a nice guy, the kind who would make a great neighbor or friend. But Esau lived for this world. And in so doing, he failed miserably where it matters the most with God. He was a successful man who went to hell. And if if we're not careful... If we're not awfully careful, we kind of buy into this lie, don't we? That I need to please the world and I'll give God whatever's left over. Mark 8, 36 very clearly says, What good is it for someone, a man, to gain the whole world and yet to forfeit his soul? You know, sometimes we focus on the wrong things, don't we? Had the opportunity this last week to go to a pastor's conference and I go to the same one every year I, I, I really enjoy listening to Johnny Hunt he does the he does the conference and he's the pastor of First Baptist Woodstock a, a huge church about 10, 12, 15,000 people every Sunday morning he's been the president of the Southern Baptist Convention written numerous books and I just like his leadership style so I go listen to him for a few days 
And he always challenges me and, and encourages me. But they do a lot of mission work. And he was telling this interesting story about mission work in their, in their church. And, and frankly, it reminded me a lot of what we're doing here. We don't have 10,000 people, but the amount of mission work we're doing is pretty significant. And how it's working in the lives of our people. But he told the story of one family whose son, he was 18 years old, just graduated high school. Son comes to mom and dad one day and says, listen, I feel called of the Lord this next year. Instead of going to college, I want to spend a year overseas doing mission work. And so mom and dad came to see Johnny Hunt. And they sat down with him and they said to him, he said they were kind of angry in their demeanor. Who do you think you are, they said, to preach and encourage our son to go overseas and do mission work for a year? Now, he made an interesting statement, and it's something I've said before and something I've experienced here at our church. When we start talking about families doing mission work, and we talk about young kids doing mission work, it's usually not the kid that's the problem. Because young kids says something like this, you know, I've been praying about this for a long time now, and I just think God's telling me I need to go do this work somewhere in the world. I need to go do mission work. When can we leave, the kid says. And then it's mom and dad that go, yeah, but what about the money and what about the time and flights and disease? and It's it's never really the child that's the problem. A lot of times it's the faith of the parent that's the problem. By the way, I'm speaking to myself. I'm not just speaking to you, okay? I understand. My daughter's talking to me about going to India. And when I talk to her, I haven't put on the pastor's hat yet. I'm just putting on the dad hat. You know what the dad hat says? Absolutely not. I mean, I know this place. You're not going. And then God reminds me. Do you love her more or do I? And so Johnny says these people are in his office and he's, he's listening to him talk and he said, I just started asking him some questions. He said, the first question I asked him was, how long have you been at this church? And they said, well, we've been here about 20 years now. He said, so your son, now that we're talking about, was born into this church, right? And they were like, yes, sir, that's, that's true. He was born at this church. And Johnny Hunt said, um, so you remember then when your son was a newborn, you went through this process of dedicating your son, right? You remember that ceremony we went through? Yes, sir, we remember. That's, that ceremony when you said to the Lord, Lord, we trust you with our son. We want to dedicate our son to you, Lord. You do whatever you want to in his life. You remember that ceremony? Yes, sir, we remember that. And do you remember in that ceremony that you told the Lord that you understood biblically that you were kind of just the steward of that child? That God knew what was best for that child and you were just given the responsibility to take care of that child for a certain number of years and raise that child, right? But you were a steward. That child really belonged to the Lord. Do you remember that? Yes, sir, we remember that. And now, he said to them, you're upset that the very God you dedicated your son to is calling him to go overseas and tell other people about Jesus Christ. He said they got up and they weren't real happy. And they left. And he said, he, he, he kind of used some pastoral wisdom in here and he just kind of let it sit. He didn't chase them out in the parking lot. He didn't call them. He just let it sit. He learned, and I've learned this too, kind of the hard way, that the Holy Spirit can work on you a lot better than I can. So he just let the Holy Spirit work, he said. Several weeks passed, a couple of months passed, and he said that couple finally came back into his office. They said, you know what, Johnny, we, we, we need to repent. We're sorry. 
We do trust the Lord and we do want the Lord to work and we want the Lord to use our son. And so they let their, their boy go overseas for a year. And Johnny Hutt said that the Lord so gripped his heart while he was there that he learned the language in a year, which is hard to do, by the way. He learned the customs and he felt such a calling that he joined the International Mission Board full time. And he's been in that same country now for 10 years, faithfully serving the Lord. But... If his parents had had their way the first time, he never would have gone. And so I asked myself the question as a dad, what kind of legacy am I leading? If my legacy is going to be viewed through my family, what kind of family am I leaving? And so I want to finish just with some very quick application. I don't have a lot of time, but I, I, I didn't want to talk about all the negatives without talking about some of the good. So let me just remind you very quickly that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. We've talked about this from the beginning. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you don't have to flip there. I'm going to read it. You've heard it before. I just want to remind you and then give you three very quick things that families ought to be doing. If we want to live and lead a legacy for the Lord... Here's what we ought to be doing. Deuteronomy 6, beginning of verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws. The Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Right? This, is, this is many years later in Deuteronomy 6. The children of Israel have gone into Egypt. They've come out of Egypt because of the ten plagues. Pharaoh's let them go. They've wandered in the wilderness 40 years. They're preparing now to cross over the Jordan River back into the promised land. And God is saying to them, listen, here are the laws and decrees and commands you need to remember, verse 2. So that, here's why you remember these things. So that your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly. In a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Remember, we're, now we're remembering back from Deuteronomy all the way to the promises in Genesis. Hear, O Israel, verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So very quickly, three things families ought to be doing if we want to leave a legacy for the Lord. Number one, families should fear the Lord. Families should fear the Lord. You say, what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means understanding the power of God in our lives and trusting him to work. That's what fear of the Lord means. It means understanding that I can't do it myself. Lord, I need you to help me. I can't figure out on my own. God, I need you to do it for me. I trust you enough with my very life. One scholar said this kind of fear is to grasp the wonder of the gospel that a holy and righteous God could take on flesh and enter this sin-stained world to rescue us from the clutches of death. Sometimes we forget the awe of the Lord, don't we? Sometimes we forget his power and we forget all he's done for us. We should fear the Lord. Dads, you ought to be teaching your children to fear the holiness of the Lord. You ought to be teaching them to understand the power of the Lord in your life. How's the Lord working in your heart? Mom, how's the Lord working in your heart? 
Mom and dad, how's the Lord working in your household? What are the incredible things the Lord has done in your life that demonstrated his power and glory? How have you learned over the years to fear the Lord? We ought to be teaching these things to our children. Second thing we ought to be doing, families should obey the Lord. Very clearly, it tells us in Scripture, we should obey the Lord. But here's the problem. We don't like to be told what to do, do we? We had a, a, a fun experience yesterday. I told Jonas I was going to tell the story. He got a pair of Batman wings yesterday. Now, they're pretty sweet, I'm going to tell you right now. And they're cool because they're a backpack you wear. So you put on this backpack with straps, and it looks like it's just a backpack. Until... You pull the string, whoop, and the wings go, whoop. They're like three feet out each. They're really cool looking wings. Now, the difficult things about wearing Batman wings around your house is the halls aren't six feet wide, and the lamps in the halls are sometimes closer than they appear. And so as you run down the hall with Batman wings on, if you're not careful, things fall on the floor. Well, it's not as cool to run down the hall sideways with your Batman wings, so... You go to bigger rooms, right? Like the living room where there's a couch. And so yesterday afternoon, I was standing in the kitchen and I saw Jonas. He had his wings on and he walked over to the couch and he crawled up on the couch and kind of stood up on the back of the couch. And could, before I could say anything, he's leaping off the couch, right? <laughs> you that have sons understand exactly. What I'm, now it's not, but you know, it's four feet off the ground. Not a, not a difficult thing to do. Not dangerous by any means. But then dad brain kicks in for a second. And I thought to myself, I wonder if he knows those things don't really allow him to fly. And so I said, hey, buddy, come here. Those are cool wings, man. That was a really neat jump you did. But you know that you can't go to the top of the stairs and jump off of those wings on, right? You understand that, right? Yes, sir, I know. Because it'd be fun in the air. It'd be really cool for a couple of seconds. And then you'd hit the ground and the fun would end. See, our job as dad or mom, you know, your family, our job is to teach and to instruct and to correct. That's what we do. Sometimes it's a fun correction. That was a fun discussion to have. But sometimes it's more difficult, isn't it? God says, I want what's best for you. And I can see things up ahead you probably haven't even thought about. And as you're walking up the stairs with your Batman wings on and you're ready to jump to the first floor, God's saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute now. This may seem cool to you and fun and enjoyable, but you need to understand when you hit the ground, all that fun goes away. If, if you'll just listen to me and you'll trust me, bring verse three back up again for me if you would. It's, it's fascinating what the Lord says here. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that What? It may go well with you. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? What a simple biblical truth. God says, if you'll trust me and you'll obey me, things will go well with you. And then finally, as I finish up this morning, third thing, we need to teach our children and teach our families to love the Lord. Moms, dads, they can't love the Lord if they don't see us loving the Lord. You understand that? You can't teach them to love something that you despise. You can't teach them to love something you ignore. You hear, hear where I'm going here? You can't teach them to love something that's not really important to you. And you may say all the right things, but I promise you, they're going to watch what you do. 
And when you tell them that they should love the Lord and trust the Lord, and then you live a life contrary to what you're saying, it's not going to make any difference to them. If we're going to teach our children to love the Lord, we need to model it ourselves. So, so here's the question as I finish this morning. What's the legacy you're leaving? Is it, is it a, a Jacob legacy of trust and absolute surrender and saying, Lord, you know, I don't really know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds it. <laughs> and I don't know where I'm going and I'm not exactly sure what you're calling me to do, but I, I trust you. Is it a Jacob legacy or is it an Esau legacy? Where I'm going to do everything I can to prop up the things around me to make it look good, all the stuff I have, the beautiful family, all the possessions, but on the inside, I'm corrupt. Two paths. Your greatest legacy is how you live for Christ. What legacy are you going to leave? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you can show us scripturally the path we should take. We thank you, Father, as difficult as it is, that we can learn from others' mistakes, Lord. We can see the paths. There's the path of Jacob. There's the path of Esau. Father, you give us the spiritual discernment to live our lives in such a way that we're honoring to you. Help us not to to believe, Father, that through earthly things, through the praise of men, Lord, that you're going to be pleased. Instead, help us to see through those things to the heart, to the heart of trusting you, of obeying you, of fearing you, of loving you, of trusting you. And may we leave a legacy, Father, in our children and our grandchildren. May it be said of us that they loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Give us, Lord, the power and the faith, Lord, the faith. The devil's going to lie to us as soon as we leave this morning about doing this in our own homes. Give us the faith and the shield, Lord, that we need to extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy so we can live with courage, Lord, so we can be bold in our walk, not afraid, not fearful of the world, Lord, but trusting in you. Knowing that when we do that, Father, great and incredible things are going to be accomplished in our lives and in our families for your honor and glory. Lord, we love you and we serve you in all things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to open up the altar as we always do. and Maybe it's an opportunity for you to reflect for a few minutes on your legacy. What are you doing now that's going to impact generations to come for Christ? You come. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.